going to be four degrees. That's the prediction this weekend. Four degrees. And yet, Laura Johnston will probably be on a ski hill. <laughs> it's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura and Layla Atassi and Lisa Garvin to have a talk on a Thursday. And we're going to start with some really good news. So I'm going to go right to it. Has Omicron peaked in Northeast Ohio? Well, <laughs> I was waiting for you to throw it to me. <laughs> no, go. <laughs> it, it well, it does appear to be true that that Omicron has the surge has passed. On Wednesday, the number of patients hospitalized with COVID in Ohio decreased for the tenth day in a row, according to the Ohio Hospital Association. And Northeast Ohio led those stats with its its dropping hospital patient counts, despite the fact that just a month ago. We were pretty much the epicenter of this surge. Julie Washington reports that in the 18 counties in the two hospital regions that include Cleveland and Akron, the number of COVID patients is down 24 percent in the last week, while dropping just 1 percent in the rest of the state. In, in Cuyahoga, Geauga, Lake, Lorraine and Ashtabula counties, the drop has been even more dramatic. It fell 36 percent from a peak of 1,754 patients on January 5th to just over a little, a little over 1,100 patients on Wednesday. Of course, you know that none of this is to say that things are great. <laughs> COVID case counts in Cuyahoga County uh, still remain eight times higher than the CDC's threshold for what constitutes an area experiencing high transmission. At, at the height of this Omicron surge, we were 13 times higher than the CDC threshold. So it's all relative, I guess. You know, we're trending in the right direction, but. The light at the end of the tunnel is still but a pinpoint, in my opinion. The bad news about Omicron is it was way more contagious than all the previously contagious variants. But the good news about that is it causes a massive flame out. I mean, people got it fast. Lots of people got it fast. It overran the hospital system. But because it moved so quickly, it flamed out quickly. And we're on the downside. And probably by this time next month, we'll, we'll be getting back into those safe areas. And then a month later, it's springtime and everything goes into abeyance. So Laura Johnston, in December, we talked about how this would go this way and it's going that way. It's a good thing, right? Right, Chris, you heard it here first, <laughs> right from Chris Quinn's mouth. But no, it is really good news because I think a lot of us at Christmas were thinking, that they were saying the peak was going to come in mid-January and we were thinking how are we going to get through that when the numbers are already going sky high but you're right we haven't seen the same kind of uh really severe sickness in a lot of people and if you're vaccinated and boosted it could be just a a couple of days of discomfort yeah I, that, and we've heard that loud and clear people who have the booster they're sick but it's a minor cold and frankly there's a there's a cold going around that people say is far worse in its symptoms than the the coronavirus is for people who have had the booster shot it's just nice that we can see the trend it's a 10-day trend we're clearly on the downswing other parts of the country are still yet to peak but because we were early we're going to be early out of it and people might be able to get have some you seen, sense of normalcy have you seen any data on the the delta omicron balance out there I haven't seen anything lately about what's in circulation. No, well, I'm originally, for the next Greek letter, man. <laughs> well, originally, the, the CDC had said that Omicron had, had just obliterated Delta, but they pulled that back. This is a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. but, but Omicron is just so much more contagious than Delta, which was so much more contagious than the original version. So, it's, it's just fast. After we run out of Greek letters, what are we going to go to? 
It'll be over. It'll just be cold. So. I think we'll go to we'll, Disney characters. We'll, we'll be done. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. What's the real story about the giant defense contractor Transdime, which has its headquarters in Cleveland? Has it built the government, or is the government unfairly portraying the company as having abused taxpayers? Lisa, there are clearly multiple sides to this story. Yes, and they do fall along party lines, apparently. Um, Transdime is a Cleveland-based aerospace parse parts company. And over the years, they've acquired smaller parts makers. So they, they employ like 10,000 people and they have many, many subsidiaries that make these parts. So they kind of corner the market on some of these parts. Uh, they do, uh, you know, provide them to the Pentagon and also per commercial airlines. But Transdime was before the House Committee on Oversight Reform yesterday, talking about these possible overcharges. Uh, the Department of Defense uh, uh, Inspector General Teresa Hull says, well, we did an audit of 107 parts that you provided to the Pentagon. We found 105 of them above their acceptable profit level of 15%. They found that these parts range from a profit level of 2.8 to 3,850%, and also claimed that Transdime refused to provide cost data that's required by the Truth and Negotiation Act for anything that's $2 million and above. But if, uh, and CEO, Transdime CEO, and President Kevin Stein was testifying there yesterday. He says that the standards for acceptable profit levels set by the Pentagon is arbitrary and inflammatory. So we'll see what, you know, how that shakes out. The Democrats on this committee are saying, well, overcharging is wrong and they should repay. Republicans are saying, well, but the profit ceilings are inherently un-American. That's what James Comer, a Republican from Kentucky said, and said that the Department of Defense also has inventory management issues that might be causing these cost overruns. But interestingly enough, back in 2019, Transdime did pay $16 million after an audit and hearings found that, that they overcharged, and that was a bipartisan agreement there. So very interesting. So yeah, it depends on who you talk to. They're an interesting company. I mean, most people in Cleveland aren't even aware of it, and it's this massively huge company. They've bought lots of other companies that are the sole source for parts. Mm -hmm. It's the only place you can go to get these parts. It's not like there's competition. They argue that they charge the government a lot less than they charge their commercial clients and that the government agreed to these prices. And so they're, they're, they're saying it, it costs a lot of money to design these, these parts. We're the only ones that make these parts. This is how we recover our design costs. And so there's a good bit of back and forth going on. Uh, it's hard to see where the truth is. Are they charging too much? Are they, are they charging fairly? You would think the government on the front end would set a rate that they think is fair and pay that. And why the government doesn't do that, I don't know. It's like going to the grocery store, paying way more than you want to for the steak, and then complaining later that you got bilked on the price of the steak. Well, you probably should have said that before you went up to the cashier right, with the right. steak, right? And Transdime says, you know, uh, the Pentagon and the, their federal contracts are only 6% of their business. Almost all of their business is for commercial airlines, you know, the ones that make the planes, Boeing and McDonnell Douglas, if they're still around, I'm not sure. But anyway, so, but yeah, but I mean, it is an, and the, the, the uh, people on the committee pointed out that, you know, that, 
their business model is to acquire companies and make spare parts and then raise the prices. That's what that's what the inspector general said. So you can say, well, okay, that's a good thing or that's a bad thing, depending on your perspective. Or the government, if they want more competition, they could subsidize more competition. It's uh, it seems like the fact that it became so partisan based is a shame because it should be about fact finding. But interesting that a Cleveland company that almost no one knows about is such a newsmaker. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The North Korean abuse of Otto Warm Beer, who ultimately died after his imprisonment there, was devastating news for his family and for America. Has the U.S. government been able to extract any cash damages from North Korea as a result of the torture they did to this man? Layla? A little bit. Laura? Laura, <laughs> a little bit. Um, this story is is so sad and such an enigma. Sorry, an enigma. We don't exactly know what happened to Otto Warmbier. You just know he was a University of Virginia student from Cincinnati. He was on a tour of North Korea. And the North Korea government said he tried to steal a government propaganda poster and was sentenced to 15 years of hard labor. When he was returned to the United States about a year later, he was in a vegetative state and he never regained consciousness before he died in 2017. In December of 2018, a federal court entered a judgment of 501 uh, million dollars for the torture, hostage taking, and extrajudicial killing of Otto Wambier. Now, a federal judge is awarding his parents about two hundred and forty thousand dollars plus interest. This money was seized from the Korea Kwangsong Banking Corporation, which is an agency of the North Korea regime. And basically, because they're under sanctions, they can't move around money in the United States, so the government can seize it. Yeah, I mean, th this is one of those real tragedies that had everybody looking at North Korea saying, what are you doing? I mean, you, you did wonder why anybody from America would go into that country because you're taking your life into your hands. But th this was just so sad. And and they finally turned him back over, like you said, right. when he's unconscious and, and clearly haven't been severely abused. Um, he was only he was only there five days. He was on this supposedly educational tour before he went uh, somewhere else. He like he was in college and was going to spend the semester, I believe, in Hong Kong and just basically stopped over in North Korea. He was like taken away at the airport. And that's the last of anyone ever saw of him. They they don't know how he ended up in a vegetative state. Um, the North Korea government said it was botulism and he took a sleeping pill, but no one was ever able to corroborate that. They never found any you know, a skull fracture or anything like that. It's just, it's really, really sad. And obviously no amount of money that you give his parents now is going to make up for the loss of the life. Well, and North Korea is such a terrible regime. I doubt we'll ever get an answer. It's such a close society Correct. and not truthful and all that other kind of stuff. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Who is Democrat Tim Ryan counting on to help him raise some serious dollars in his bid to win the Senate seat being vacated by Rob Portman? Layla, Tim Ryan is turning to the old stalwart of the Democratic Party. <laughs> right. It's Hillary Clinton. He's he's hosting his high dollar fundraiser with her, despite the fact that she lost Ohio by eight percentage points in the 2016 presidential election. But the cost to attend this fundraiser, which is going to be held on January 31st, starts at $2,900 for individuals, with prices going all the way up to $20,800 at the, quote, co-chair level. But get this, donors won't get to meet Clinton in person because this is going to be a virtual fundraising mm. event. I'm sorry, but what is that going to be like? I mean, everyone 
what everyone's going to log on to Zoom like it's a work meeting and listen to some speeches. I mean, ugh, it's terrible for that price. I mean, of course, so as you can imagine, Republicans and even some Democrats are making fun of this. They're saying Ryan's choice of of Hillary Clinton is totally out of touch given her resounding loss in Ohio to Donald Trump, but also the fact that it's a it's virtual and offers no chance for a face-to-face meeting is really pretty lame for the money. Uh, you know, former chairwoman of the Ohio Republican Party, Jane Timken, who's also vying for this Senate seat, said, you know, you couldn't pay most Ohioans $2,900 to attend this. And, uh, you know, Ryan's people clap back at that and say that he's obviously not out of touch with voters because he's built his war chest almost entirely with donations under $100. But, um yeah, I would. I think that sounds like a dreadful event uh, to spend thousands of dollars on. <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't get the the thrill. I I mean, my bet is people will do it just because they want him to win. They're worried about sure, the caliber sure. of the human beings that are running on the Republican side because they're pretty frightening and they're run away from the truth and they're devotion to Donald Trump, Jane Timken being one of those. So they, they'll, they'll give him the money. And he's right. He has raised his money, unlike the Republicans that are multimillionaires and self-funding in a lot of ways. He has raised quite a bit of money. I just Hillary Clinton is the strange thing here. I mean, both Barack Obama or, you know, somebody, but Hillary Clinton was the loser. The Wall Street Journal recently ran something saying she's the best hope for the Democrats. And that's such a Wall Street Journal thing to do. They'd really like Hillary Clinton to be the presidential candidate in two years because it would pretty much guarantee a Republican <laughs> win. Uh, you could see the Wall Street Journal where they're coming from. I uh, mean, granted, the people who are going to ante up with thousands of dollars to attend this virtual event are probably Hillary Clinton fans. But overall, you know, the aligning with Hillary Clinton, if you're talking about a statewide race and you're trying to court voters who, you know, might not have made up their mind and they see that you're so closely aligned with this loser from Mm -hmm. 2016, that that is strategically, you know, bizarre. There'll be pictures of that that the Republicans run to hurt his chances statewide. There is a risk of standing with her or appearing on a on a screen with her. And like you said, who wants more time? on screen on in screen virtual meetings i mean the, the, the one of the things that we've all learned from the pandemic is we really don't want to spend more time looking at our screens in virtual meetings well and but, part of the the thing of a fundraiser is you want to meet these people you're giving oh, yeah. these money to these people you want to shake hands with them meet their friends you know network so i don't see that happening virtually no i don't either you're listening to today in ohio How might a 20-year study that the Cleveland Clinic is launching help us understand and combat Alzheimer's disease? Lisa, I hope they get somewhere before I need what they learn. Well, it's it's a 20-year study, and actually, you are probably you might be eligible. I don't know. We'll see. You're over 50. <laughs> but anyway, this uh, this brain study, it's a 20-year study, and they hope to enroll 20,000 patients over that time. And they're focusing on neurological diseases such as uh, multiple sclerosis, epilepsy, Parkinson's disease, and Alzheimer's. One in six people globally is affected by a neurological disease. So the results of this study will be very impactful. They hope to ten thousand. They hope to have ten thousand enrollees in the first five years. They're looking for people who are fifty and older, 
or healthy adults 20 and older who have uh, multiple sclerosis in a close relative in their family. And they hope to attract some federal grants after three to five years. So this, what this involves is uh, the people who enroll in this clinical trial or study will go through yearly exams. They'll get MRIs and EEGs, blood tests, and other tests. They will also get a small stipend for their, for their participation. So the goal of this study is to look for genetic markers. They're looking for structural, also cognitive, and molecular changes that may signal the onset of these neurological diseases. Unfortunately, with these diseases, most of them are diagnosed after it's too late to reverse the effects of them. So I think what comes out of this could have very, um, very big impacts. Yeah, these are, we talk about cancer and things, but these are devastating because they rob people of their personality. They rob their, of their ability to think. And anybody that's ever seen this happen knows it's just one of the most tragic kind of things that can happen to somebody who had spent a lifetime being vital. And we've made very little progress against it. Mm -hmm. I mean, so I'm excited that they're doing this because we seem like we need a giant step forward to combat these, these horrible deteriorations of the brain. So salute to the Cleveland Clinic. I hope they get the people they need to participate. It's today in Ohio. Two projects critical to the economic vitality of the Great Lakes are getting $742 million from the big infrastructure bill. Laura, you're the big lake denizen. What will this money pay for? Well, we're going to do two big projects, the Sioux Locks and the Brandon Road Dam in Illinois. So the $516 million goes to the Sioux Locks that collects, connects Lake Michigan and Lake Superior on the St. Mary's River. And it's how materials get from places like Duluth, Minnesota to Cleveland because of the differences in water levels. So 80 million tons of tar cargo valued at nearly $6 billion pass through that every year. And these, I've actually seen the Sioux Locks. I thought it'd be really cool. And it is, but it's just like, it's like watching paint dry. I mean, you're literally watching a lock fill up with water, but these will improve that and make it a, a more modern system for the boats to go through. And then $226 million to the Brandon Road Lock and Dam project in Illinois. This is where basically the carp can get through these invasive Asian carp. And if you've ever seen like the YouTube videos of them, they are massive fish that literally jump out of the water. And if they got into the Great Lakes, they could wreck our $7 billion fishing and $16 billion recreational boating industry. So the Chicago River is engineered to flow away from Lake Michigan and into the Mississippi River. It was done basically to get rid of Chicago sewage. And now we have this problem of how like the two watersheds connect. Well, it's it's good to see the they're getting some spending here. Is this something that you think uh, Rob Portman and Sherrod Brown had something to do with? Or is the Biden administration a big fan of the Great Lakes? It's definitely possible. Marcy Kaptur has always been the huge, yeah, obviously her, her, district goes along the lake. So she's always been a big proponent of this. But yeah, I don't think you can find an Ohio politician who's anti-Great Lakes. I mean, <laughs> they, uh, Portman's been a big proponent of it all the time. He even fought against Trump when he tried to lower the amount of money we got for the Great Lakes restoration money every year. So I think anybody with a, a hand in this is rooting for it and hoping you know that we improve these these areas. Okay. It's today in Ohio. How might the owner of the Happy Dog make a difference in reviving Cleveland's restaurant and bar industry when the pandemic wanes? Layla, we've talked before that there are a few industries that have been harmed as much as restaurant and bars 
because of the pandemic and they're mm-hmm. in another phase of it now people are staying home again because of omicron they just every time they think they're they're okay another wave hits and they lose all their customers and money so what is the owner of the happy dog going to do to help out well, our Mark Bona reports that Happy Dog owner Sean Watterson will be working for the Fund for Our Economic Future, which is an agency that helps philanthropic and civic leaders explore what matters to a community and, and implement long-term equitable economic changes through job creation. So Watterson will serve as a senior consultant for them. He'll be responsible for identifying short-term and long-term solutions to improve the hospitality industry's ability to attract and retain and promote workers. You know, like you said, Chris, we've heard so many stories about the difficulty that restaurant owners have faced because of worker shortages. Often they've had to shorten hours or even close for days of the week because they just can't staff up. And it will be Watterson's job to study that issue and find ways to make restaurant work more attractive. So Watterson had already been working with the National Independent Venue Association and and helped get the Save Our Stages legislation passed through Congress. That bill set up a grant program and critical financial help for arts venues whose industry had really been ravaged during the pandemic. Once the bill was signed into law, he then kind of shifted into the into the the role of, you know, guiding a task force to make sure that funds were getting to the right people. So he says he's just so excited to work on these creative solutions to what has really become a very vexing problem for the industry during the pandemic. Um, you know, the happy dog itself survived a 15 month shutdown. So hopefully Watterson can can bring uh, all that he's learned these last couple of years to to this high level effort. It, it It's really, though, about getting people back into the seats. Right. I mean, it, how do you do that when people are so afraid of getting sick? I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, um, but but I mean, don't you think, though, that people are returning to to the seats? I mean, every time I I have gone to pick up my carryout order, I feel like the place is way too packed for my Lisa is our resident restaurant goer and she even cut back during Omicron, right? I did. I did. And what I do is I eat during non-traditional hours. So I like go after like 1 p.m. or 1.30 p.m. But there are a couple of restaurants like my favorite noodle place there on uh, Superior. I can't go because it's tiny. It is so tiny. And I have not gone back there because it's so small. Even though everybody's masked up, I'm like, oh, I'm not going there. So, yeah. I'm, but don't you think Go ahead. that even oh, we're talking about Omicron receding? I think the bigger trouble is still the staffing. Like, how are you going to how are you going to balance what people are willing to pay to go out for dinner with what you need to charge to be able to pay workers a living wage? I mean, we just keep seeing industry after industry being hit by this. And I think that's the long-term issue is there is a balance there. Mm-hmm. Well, I but- also, you know, wonder, you know, the question of what makes, what makes restaurant work more attractive, what makes any work more attractive, pay them more. That's the solution. Right. I mean, that's no, I really what it boils down to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But right. if you pay them more, you're charging more. And then people right. are going to curtail how often, they arrived. Laura and I were discussing yesterday an expense form that two people went out to lunch and we were saying, wow, that's an expensive lunch, but really not anymore. That's what it costs for people to go to lunch. So so it's it's the inflationary spiral that we haven't seen for, for decades. But as workers get more fairly compensated, prices go up for everybody. That's going to impact the presidential election. It, it, it's a challenge. 
it affects those small businesses that we want to see the independent restaurants, right? Like it's not affecting, I mean, it does affect McDonald's, right? But the people who are really going to be affected the most are the people who, who are mom and pop shops through their family businesses. Yeah. I, I wish them well. It just doesn't seem like there's going to be an easy answer. You want people to come back. You want to pay people fairly. You want to charge what you need. And those things are all in conflict with each other. You know, Lisa, if you've suddenly found that when you go out to eat, that the price was 50% higher, you might go out to eat less often, right? No, because, uh, you know, when I was a professional woman, I ate out every day. So eating out is kind of a part of my life. But I will say, you know, restaurant profit margins are extremely thin and two out of three restaurants usually fail within the first three years of business. So, I mean, they're just, you know, they're so, yeah, asking them to pay more for their help and for their food. It puts them in an untenable situation, which is why I try to go out as much as I can and tip heavily. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. How many times did someone get caught carrying a gun while trying to board a flight at Cleveland Hopkins International Airport last year? Lisa, this is like the moron award, right? You have to be an idiot to try and carry a gun onto a plane, but it happened over and over and over again. It makes you wonder what people are thinking. 43 handguns were seized by the TSA at Cleveland Hopkins last year. That compares to 19 in 2020, although that's not fair because travel was way down in 2020. But back in 2019, there were 26 guns seized at Hopkins. Most of them were loaded with ammo. I mean, that's crazy. You can take a gun with you on an airplane, but it has to be in your check baggage. It has to be unloaded. The ammo has to be in a separate case from the gun. So I guess people didn't like get that memo and figured they wanted to have their gun with them in the cabin. I don't know. But in Columbus Airport, the John Glenn Columbus Airport, they also saw a rise in handgun seize 33 last year compared to 24 in 2020. And this is not, this is a serious deal. I mean, your first offense, you're going to pay about a $4,100 fine and you could have assessed additional civil penalties up to $13,910 per violation. So, I mean, people that do this, it's going to hit their wallet pretty quick. Yeah, and and you lose your, your TSA pre-chat. I mean, it's it's something that carries forward. You're flagged from then on. Right. And, and it almost always, it's a slap the forehead. Oops, I had my gun in my bag and I forgot to take it out. But you know, <laughs> gun owners, you know, they always say they're very careful and they're very cognizant of where their weapon is to accidentally try and get through with a gun. It boggles the mind. And it's like you said, it's very, very expensive. Uh, and I'm, I mean, I, you got to credit the TSA for finding that many. You hope right. they find them all. You hope some people aren't getting through somehow with them. But I mean, I accidentally take my water bottle through sometimes, but then you just have to chug it as you're waiting for the conveyor belt to take your stuff. Right. Yeah, a water bottle and a gun. There's a big difference there. And if you think is about it... a gun in a, in a carry-on baggage, like if you're moving stuff around in the overhead bin, I mean, if somebody like juggle, you know, jars your suitcase trying to get to their own, I mean, that gun could go off. It's crazy. 
So if you if you are stopped and they, they seize your gun on the way, is that a crime to be or is it just confiscated the way the water bottle? Is no, 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 no. You're arrested. You're taken away. Oh, OK. Um, so then, they, yeah, that's a problem. I, I, I don't know how many times it results in actually a criminal conviction, because I think in most cases it's somebody being stupid. And so they just slam them with the, the heavy duty fines. But you don't get on the plane at that point. You're done. They are taking you into the back room because they have to figure out whether you were a threat what you know was this just utter stupidity or were you actually thinking of doing something bad it it, it really destroys your entire day and week but i it happens over and over again and i guess it's just you sound the like you're speaking of from experience chris no no no, no. <laughs> has it ruined your day no <laughs> no no i'm a tsa pre-check guy man i guard that zealously i hate squeaky clean <laughs> nearly right. six no go ahead i was just go gonna ahead. say uh, nationwide because we have a couple minutes to kill um nationwide <laughs> 5,972 firearms were seized last year, and that averages out to about 10.2 guns per 1 million passengers. And I, I don't know, I, I should probably not point this out, but out of the top 10 worst airports, Hartsfield, Atlanta being the highest, a lot of them seem to be in the South, just saying. Oh, well, yeah. We'll end it there. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We're ending a little early today. It was a slow news day yesterday. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Lisa. We'll be back tomorrow to wrap up the week's news. Thank you for listening.